because rugby is just combat, isn't it? And isn't it isn't it a creation for us to have battles and isn't it essentially a war across a campaign and each game's a battle? And they went, yeah. And I said, well, what's the samurai's ultimate goal? And they're like, I don't know. I said, it was to die with honour. And they're like, oh. And then, and then all of a sudden the lights go on and they're like, oh, so the goal of rugby is to die. And I go, yeah. The goal of rugby is to go so hard that the coach has to pull you off because you just can't get off the ground. Hey, hope you're keeping well and welcome to the Off-Field Rugby Pod. Today, I'm chatting with renowned sports psychologist David Galbraith. David is also a clinical psychologist and has been working with Japan since 2018 and was with them at the 2019 World Cup when they beat Ireland, Scotland, Samoa and topped their group. He's worked with New Zealand Sevens for over a decade. He works with New Zealand Olympic athletes and spent about a decade with the Chiefs in Super Rugby and was there with Sonnyville Williams when they won the title in 2012. David is incredibly insightful. The conversation starts around how we find true happiness and how we can live our lives in alignment with who we truly are. A lot of people have things they thought would make them happy, but deep down they know they're not. David talks about how you can get the answers that you're looking for if you want them, but how this takes courage. We also chat about the work he does with sports people. He gives a formula on how you can achieve your goals and it's incredible. It's simple, but so insightful. We chat about how you can push yourself to crazy extremes when training and avoid burnout. And also how you can harness nerves to give you serious energy on the field. He chats about the differences he has found in Japanese rugby players and New Zealanders. And this is pretty interesting. I think you'll be surprised. And he talks about how we often think too much to our detriment, both on the field and outside of the field as well in life, and how you can move away from that and the benefits of doing so. Please subscribe to the pod if you haven't already. I have some great guests coming up. And now would you do me a quick favor and leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll take about 30 seconds. Just let me know what you enjoy about the pod. I really like getting your feedback. It helps me tailor things going forward. And the ratings and reviews also help other people find the podcast. So quick mention from our sponsor, and then it's episode number 33 with David Galbraith. A lot of people stress about money, Where should you be investing? Are you prepared if there's a crash? And loads more. And if you're not an expert, finances can be really daunting. I know the people at Sparks Wealth, and they're brilliant. What they do is they educate you on your finances without any jargon. They create a personalized plan for you and manage your money so that it's working for you and so that you don't need to be worrying about it. You can book a free, no-obligation Zoom call now on their website, sparkswealth.ie. What's your background, Brian? How did you get into podcasting? Um, so I backgrounded um, played play rugby, coach rugby. I played, say, underage at Ireland, different 
age grades and then moved to the States to, to do a master's and play and coach. And um, I'm still playing now post-COVID coaching in university. And the reason I got into podcasts, and I just love chatting with, uh, one of the kind of reasons actually is I know a lot of guys who play at higher levels now. And I don't like the way the media ask questions. And I, whenever I hear someone who I know, I'm like, that's not him. And he's given these kind of awkward and awkward questions or awkward answers because he's been backed into a corner and talked about selection. What are your thoughts on the coach? This, that, the other. And I, I'm like, oh, that's I, so I just want to have a chat with people and I enjoy chatting with people. And I want to help young players by hearing from hearing from players and hearing from coaches and that kind of thing because I certainly didn't have it when I was 15 16 17 I wouldn't have been great with the mental side of the game like you know would have got nervous lack self-belief confidence all that kind of stuff and I would have benefited hugely from hearing podcasts like yourself and Jay Carter mm. or hearing different you know just hearing from different people hearing from players hearing from coaches I would have benefited hugely from that so I want to do that to help young players. Wicked, wicked. The irony is if I'd had um, me and Jay Carter listen to when I was 18, we wouldn't be talking now. I'd be I'd be living up in Valdez in Alaska or in Whitehorse or somewhere. I'd be skiing them out. I'd be skiing. I'd probably be dead, actually, from a Why? skiing accident or something, an avalanche or something. I would have been, I reckon I'd have completely different um, life path of I'd had the same conversations I have now when I was to my 18 year old self like obviously you've got to go through your experiences to then find that freedom I think and wisdom but or knowing but man I wish I'd had me to talk to when I was 18 because it would have been a completely different um, life journey that's for sure so man I love having these talks with people because if there's people that one for your one person that's great if I don't get any of that sort of link off it that doesn't bother me because it makes me just buzz anyway for what I would have been like at 18 after listening to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what would, you, what would you say to your 18-year-old self if you had a couple of minutes with them? Oh, I'd probably be listen, listen very carefully to your uh, gut. Listen very carefully to your stomach region your soul. I wouldn't have called it soul back then because I didn't have the same, I guess, understanding of the universe as I do now, but I would have said, listen to your gut, mate, because it's, it doesn't lie. And I listened too much to my rational brain back then, and that's what made me stuffed up, I reckon. And I still had it, mate, I've still had a wonderful life and a great life, but it's only really recently become peaceful hasn't been peaceful that's for sure but it was because I wasn't living my life I wasn't and that's not in a selfish sense um I wasn't living my truth really I was living the lie and the lie looked pretty good for people from the outside looking in and you know the you know the oh, I guess the history of the path looks pretty good too on the wall when you look at it that way but it wasn't it wasn't pure which is sad. So my 18-year-old self would be, mate, listen to your gut. Your gut instinct's always right. Um, and that would have had me living. I would have been, you know, I'd worked in the BC um, for a year when I was 23, up under the Yukon. 
and I, I still can't believe I came home. Brian, I just can't believe I got on a plane to come back to New Zealand, and it was like unreal. Um, but you know, I think that's the that's the thing I'd say to myself, and that would make a massive difference. Yeah, for sure. Love that resonates. And what do you mean, you mean there by um, like living a lie and it looking good on the outside? Yeah, the lie is you're happy. Yeah, yeah you reasonably you're... are, but you you are reasonably close to happy, but it's it's not pure. You know, like I talk, I, like I talk about living in the four stand deviation to the right of the the mean, and that's a hell of a special place to be in. You know, the other the other end, fourth fourth stand deviation is easy because you just get locked up. <laughs> but the other one, the other one, you're having to carve your way and stand outside the group, and you you're an outlier. You know, you're committing to be a wolf, not a sheep. And that's a hell of a lot of work and it's a hell of a lot of resilience and grit and patience and determination that's needed to live in that space. And so when you live in that space, you can't hide anymore from the truth. And so even asking someone whether they're happy or not, people will say they're happy, but they're not. They're making a decision based on a rational equation of what they've achieved, what they're achieving, how how attractive she might be, what the street is they're living on, what car they're driving, what job they've got, what people are saying about them on social media, and they go, yeah, I'm real happy, look at my life, it's amazing. But in their dark times or quiet times, they're, they're quietly, they just quietly know it's not in harmony, it's not quite in the groove and there's something missing, but they can't put their finger on it because it's too big a truth too big a truth to actually sit down and say oh yeah mm. it, it affects you doesn't it when you're not living your purpose and like having your days in line with your purpose mm. and what you say there is trusting your gut and mm. listening to that yeah it's the difference between dying slowly or living your life Most people sadly yeah. are just dying slowly. Yeah, I've heard you say before as well is that some people there's living and then there's living, and some people mm. think they're mm. living, but they're really just in bullshit world. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and that's what we're we're, we're, we're conditioned robots, really. So it feels a bit harsh calling them bullshit world, but they are, um, and they genuinely think when they make their analysis that they've got it ticking over but that's just because they're, they're making that evaluation against a prescribed set of expectations or prescribed set of rules yeah and do you think, boxes. yeah i've kind of thought about this before do you think there's correlation between that and midlife crisis yeah i think what happens when you get to a certain age you're forced not to care about some things that you did care about. And then that's when the, you know, that's when the, I guess the crack appears or the cracks appear and then the dominoes start falling at that stage. And, you know, you get to that point where it's half time. I like to think about half time, the ref's just blowing the whistle and the oranges are out. And you get an opportunity to check your game plan and how things have gone for the first half. And you're just like, oh, shit, I've only got, 
half to go, and that's the dissonance or the distress comes from time running out. And it forces yeah. people to get truthful then. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage, though, doesn't it, to follow your gut and, like you say, to be an outlier, to be a wolf, not a sheep. Mm. You've got to be prepared to be alone, stand alone. The irony is, though, by being that way or finding that type of purity, you start belonging more than you ever have before. What do you mean by that? Well, when, when you can find stability inside yourself to the degree that you then don't need the social affirmations that you're important or worthy, it means your connection and resonance with people moves to a level that you've never experienced before because when you listen, you're genuinely listening. The feelings you have are not based on a contingency that you need them to think you're A, B and C to feel good. So the relationship becomes pure that could be you know for the, an intimate romantic relationship it can be with your children it can be with your own parents it can be with your brothers and sisters and your friends so it's not until you find that freedom that you no longer need an external check to find yourself that you can truly connect with people because otherwise it's always noisy it's always polluted it's always contingent there's always some sort of um transaction happening in the interaction between people because they're both playing the game they're both both dancing the dance of insecurity and needing to belong so there's no genuineness in it but when you have the inner space that you don't need that because you found yourself um, you can then connect with the universe you know, by yourself watching the stars, you don't need to take a photo on your phone and put it on Instagram and say, wow, look at this, everybody. <laughs> you can just go, oh, wow, that's amazing. You know, it's like it's just different. Yeah, and how do people get there, say, if they are, like, I, I understand, like, a lot of what you're saying and it resonates, and, but, like, people who are, say, like worrying about what others think of you following the ideals that you think you're meant to follow. Like you're saying earlier, drive this car, live on this street, mm. have this job, whatever, whatever, whatever. Like you, you listen mm. and hear what society say. That is what success is. That is what you're meant to do. So people who are on that path of following something that they've been told prescribed, this is what you're meant to do, but they are kind of understanding that wait a minute this like i've got this job i've got i'm living here but is this all there is like what would you say to someone like that like does it just take courage you just have to like you say listen to your gut and follow it it's not easy is it yeah you're right it's not it's not it's not easy and because by the by that stage you get to that place there's so many layers attached to it too you know you've got a mortgage maybe a massive business People rely on you to, for their income and livelihood. So, you know, you might have worked through the layers over the years and have been incredibly successful. And then ironically, it's also a trap. So sometimes it's incredibly hard to have those reflections because it often means that there's change required. So for a lot of people, they won't because it's just too big a transformation. And then usually that'll happen when they have a 
diagnosis of cancer or something and the doctor says you've got to change your life and then they do but some don't um so i like what you're asking because i'd like them to get there before there's some sort of diagnosis that forces them to have to back off and find their way and go on sort of some life pilgrimage and find it um because sometimes people do that and it's a real massive trauma for everyone around them because it's such a um if they do it too abruptly they get the process wrong um i guess that the, the way that you find that space is you know like you and i are having the chat now and so some people will listen to that and there'll be a little bit of a oh that's making sense like you're saying it resonates with you and it resonates with me when i hear other people talk about it like this i don't yeah i get that and i, I don't think it's a complicated equation but it's a really difficult one so it's recognizing that once you step into that universe and start doing that work you can't you can't go back yeah because you can't unknow what you then know and that's the key bit is it's a take a backpack with a bit of food in it because once you start you're not coming home <laughs> well you're not coming back to where you think home is that's how i like to think about it. it's a bit of an adventure and you know, you've got to follow yeah. this where we talk about finding the gut. So I think there's, the, so the layers, let's look at the layers. There's listening to the unease that sits there when you get that trigger and go, oh, okay. I'm just going to give myself permission to look at this a little bit, but I don't have to, I don't have to do radical change because some people want to do soft change and then other people's, other people, you know, are really ready to jump in and they're, they're just extremists. And that's one, either, you know, there's, there's no right way of doing it. You can be on that spectrum. Um, so I guess there's an equation that I've settled on with, I, which I hold to with all my work now with, you know, whoever I'm talking to. And the equation is quite a nice way of helping people see and see a way forward once they understand they've had a handbrake on and they've been limiting themselves and they're not living freely. So they have the they have the awareness, the awareness moment, and they go, okay, so I can see I've got a handbrake and I'm not living fully. Okay, cool. They, you know, they say they want to change, so that's cool too. There's a little decision. There's a little decision, but it's a big decision that I can't carry on like this. I need to change something. So there's a decision in that space, and that's all pretty quick. You know, they're aware, handbrake's killing me. I don't want it to be like this anymore. So there's the realisation and the decision. So that's that's the first step, really, is quiet tea or a conversation with a close friend where they are in the same transformation. And then the equation that I use once that, that's first step, they move the second step, it's them, they go, how do I shift, just like you asked, and I go, well, there's an equation that seems to help us, which is identity times courage equals authenticity. And the authenticity for me is, I've changed it to a Japanese word after being with them in the World Cup, um, and it's... A samurai term from a long long time ago it's modern meanings a little bit more sad it's more related to schizophrenia and unhealth now but in the old days it was related to a beautiful endearment and the words katsumono k-a-s-u-m-o-n-o katsumono and it's literal english translation is quintessential weirdo so you can see how modern mental health dialogue has left that probably more attached to people that are psychotic and not well because they're weird. Um, but in the old days, it referred to someone that lived purely to the way of the warrior or the Bushido code, which was seven values. 
and they were deadly with a sword, so they were the, like the ultimate person. They were reliable, trustworthy, deeply loyal, followed through with what they said, so the integrity was next level. Um, their sense of sacrifice was obviously highest level. So they, as a person, they were complete. And then with a the sword, they were deadly. So you had the combination. And I love that sense because what we're talking about there is someone that's automatically the fourth stand deviation and steps out from the crowd and doesn't look like the average, which are, you know, the corner cutters, unreliable, um, they're corruptible, they're immoral. Um, you know, like that's just to the general population. If they could get away with it, they often, you know, some of those questionnaires, hey, if you could get away with this, would you do it? Most of them say yes. You know, like if you could get away, if you could avoid paying your tax and get away with it, would you do it? Most people go, yep. Yeah. And I'm just like, hmm. what? <laughs> so yeah, that's the middle of the bell distribution curve. Um, so that's what Katsumono came from in the history. It was an endearment or a sign of respect for that person that lived that way. So you got identity times courage equals Katsumono, which is identity times courage equals weirdo, but in a beautiful way. And then the extension of it, which I think really helps people, is I say to them, well, if just imagine you're walking through a graveyard and often you see people's eulogies or you know, their last post to eternity, which is really quite nice. It's like a loving father of four, um, you know, solely missed husband of Jan or whatever and blah, 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 which is nice. But every single granite has that on it, Brian, every stone. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, that's bullshit. There's surely more. Hum- yeah, there's more. So I, I just think, you know, like imagine if you walk through a graveyard and you find a tombstone that's just got, you know, whatever, so-and-so, birth date, death date, and then he's just got fucking weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> and you and you just go straight away. You'd stop and take a minute and just reflect, like, why would someone write that on someone's last note or why would someone want that written on their last note? And you can guarantee it's because they're like what we're talking about. They're a pretty special person. And they would have been seen as being weird because of it. And so you can see, okay, so how do we roll? Well, that equation helps us take the steps that we need because it, it helps us, it changes the game because it allows us to see that the goal is to be ourselves. And then now we've got something to work with because you've got questions you can ask and go, well, if, it, if my goal now isn't about making $100 million or well, my goal isn't about finding the perfect woman or my goal isn't about finding the perfect job or my goal isn't about any of those things. Because they're all targets. A lot of people make their targets their goals, and that's what stuffs them. They're fine. Leave them alone as business targets or personal targets, but don't make them the goal. They'll happen by themselves with the right goals being worked on. And so I love that, that we bring it back. There's only really, at the core of it for me, one goal, which is for you to be yourself. And now we're really starting to talk something special because that, that, that changes the game, Brian, straight away, that... When people can see my goal is to be myself, cool. I don't have to be perfect. Perfectly imperfect as being human, so that's sweet. I can relax a little bit. And then you go, okay, so what does that mean? And then that's where the equation gives them some guidance because when I when I meet with people, you know, like if you and I were meeting on more of a mentoring conversation, you know, I'd be asking you to help me understand who you are. So this is now the identity side of it. And that often, when I ask people that question, the number of people that they just can't answer it. They actually 
they'll say I'm a banker or I'm a <laughs> yeah whatever it might be, but they they can't actually answer the question, and then that's the start of their journey, which is to go, I don't know. And I go, okay, well, here's, a, here's another question then, which is, well, where are you from? And they'll go, uh, you know, Vancouver or whatever. And I go, yeah, I get that, because that's your postcode. But where are you from? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's a big question. And I go, yeah, who are you and where are you from? And, I'll st- and I reckon we can all start there, Brian, because it starts to make us... There's so many layers off that question, which automatically, once we start looking at who we are and where we're from, it pushes us into ancestry, which is the core of identity. And then that automatically pushes us to a point of insignificance because you go, oh, shit. Because once you start digging, you can find out lots about yourself real quick. And all of a sudden, you realize that you've got lines that quickly go back to 1100 or something, and you're like, oh, I'm actually not that important. Well, I am, but I'm not. And so if people can start to dig around in that space, you start to find stories of resilience and make you feel proud about your ancestry. And, you know, that can be your grandmother or great-grandmother. It doesn't have to be miles back. You can find it just by looking at your far parents and your great-parents and your, or your grandparents and your great-grandparents because it's always close. And once people start to put a bit of a narrative to that I think they they really start to find the, the conversation changes because up until then the conversation's always in their head but as soon as you start asking who and where and they start to explore it you're moving a conversation to their chest now they're starting to feel the conversation they're not starting to think the conversation and then that's the key now now we've got we've got to live in the emotional world that the cognitive world's just such a trap it's it's so limited it's so prescribed, it's so indoctrinated on us. It's not, it's, you can't have faith and trust that your mind is yours. It's just been conditioned by people who know how to yeah. condition minds for your life. From your parents thinking they're doing a good job, then the school backs it up, and then high school rams it in. So by the time you get to 18 and 19, no wonder people are like, well, so no trust your thinking, trust your feeling, and that's where our identity takes us to a feeling space because then we, we know something then, we don't think something. So I would be really interested in people looking into the history because sometimes families have dark corners, so I appreciate some people have shitty upbringings in families too, so I always like to free them up a little bit by going, well, it's your perspective of the history that's the thing I'm after, not the history itself. So... If there's shadows there, just leave them. You don't have to look at those. Just just put a perspective on it that, you know, whatever it is that makes you feel okay to leave it there for now. And, you know, if you go, or you can find a perspective that your family has a history of um, huge courage and, and resilience to deal with, you know, trauma and trials and tribulations and then grow as people so that you can find a perspective of even the darker stuff that can help you then move on and let it go or grow with it, grow through it. Um, so there's a story that if people can look at their history and build the story, the irony is you never have to do a values-based exercise because the values sit in the ancestral actions. So all of us, you know, it's like I track my family back on my dad's side and it's farmers all the way. 
farmers, 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 farmers. And then no shit, Sherlock, here I am at 49 and I'm most happy on the farm. Um, yeah. I don't have to understand that. It's just in my genetics. It's in my social genetics. It's in my actual genetics. It's where, where my value base sits, which is hard work, um, long-term planning, um, deep connection to the climate and the and the land. So you can see how the values are all there. Um, you know, there's a sense of justice in my history as well, which then makes me really alive at the moment with the way the governance is happening around certain parts of the world. So your value base sits in your story. Getting that clear is your first step. So people can do that and they can start to find meaning and substance. And then for me, the second step is, okay, so that's who you are. And these can interchange. Like sometimes I'll ask people first, what do they want to get from catching up with me, which is what's the picture. But the identity times courage is the equation. So we're looking at it that way today because the other thing off the identity is, well, well, then, so if that's who you are and where you're from, where are you going? And then where you're going is, well, what's the picture? What's the picture that you want to be? You know, what's the picture your soul is whispering to you? Which can be both professional and personal. So there's a couple of pictures there for me that I always want people to work on, which is how do you stay alive long <laughs> mm. so that you can you know, contribute the most and achieve yeah, and enjoy important. the most. Yeah, so I always have the inner circle, which is you. And then you get into a groove for the second circle, which is your close relationships, and your third circle, which is, you know, the I guess the things that you want to chase professionally and tick off. So I just work in those layers, but I want a picture with each of those and people take some time to get that right. So I've got clarity on who they are, what the picture is. And then the third layer is part of the identity as well. Okay, so what are your expectations or your beliefs about success? Because unless we have clarity about how unconsciously we influence, whether we're pleased or proud of how we are, what we're doing, for example, if we have success or expectation as I have to be perfect, you're buggered because you're going to you'll be careful be and cons- yeah, and you'll be careful and conservative when you need to be courageous and spontaneous. So you spend up your whole life risk averse and and re- and repressed or handbrake. So you know, in rugby, it's very easy because when I've worked with rugby men, it's like we talk about what what's the expectation, and they go, oh, to win, get selected play well, don't miss your tackles, etc., etc. And I'm like, oh, yeah, so they're your targets that you made your goals. And they're like, oh, yeah. I said, well, what's the goal? And they're like, I don't know. And I said, I do, because rugby's just combat, isn't it? And isn't it, isn't it a creation for us to have battles? And isn't it essentially a war across a campaign and each game's a battle? And they went, yeah. And I said, well, what's the summarized ultimate goal? And they're like, I don't know, I said it was to die with honour. And they're like, oh. And then, and then all of a sudden the lights go on and they're like, oh, so the goal of rugby is to die. And I go, yeah. The goal of rugby is to go so hard that the coach has to pull you off because you just can't get off the mm. ground. <laughs> and doing your job at the same time. So the GPS will tell us whether you're doing that or not. And you can see how, but that's the same with life, as ironically, the goal of life is to die. 
we're all going to yeah. that's the one goal is we're all here in the end to feed the ground so that we can nurture a tree or something like we're actually food for the universe and food for the planet so if we can think about getting our expectations right we can go okay so our expectation is i just throw the kitchen or in new zealand we call we say throw the kitchen sink at it which is to give it a good give it a good nudge you know there's the goal you know so you go okay so identity is who i am where i'm from what's the picture i'm wanting to go to where am i going and then what's the expectation I've got on myself, which is not to get it. That's a target. The actual expectation is just give it a good nudge. And you can see how that is a heap of work people can do in there to start freeing them up. Because if, if that's got variation to what and how you're living now, that's where the courage comes in. Because the courage is without the courage, you can't bring the picture alive. Because careful, conservative coward really careful conservative coward is how we operate deeply unconsciously when we're living to perfectionism which most people are trying to do they're trying to be perfect and trying not to be imperfect they'll never release and the release is well we've got to have a conversation there's a conversation usually that needs to happen with people when your pictures are very there's a different picture and so you can see how the courage bit's critical to then bring a plan into place which might be okay so my relationship i've got to talk with my wife or I'll talk to my husband because this is something that needs to be talked through or my business or the business that i own there's always a conversation and then off that conversation is with yourself is well what's the what's the weekly schedule what's the plan because the plan should then show me that the picture that you said that you're moving towards is real and now now every day and this is where it becomes really simple is that we get the first all those pieces in place and then you've got a plan so the only goal now is integrity and so when i work with people i say to them so this is where you have to understand i'm not your friend because <laughs> i don't want to yeah. be friends i don't i've got enough friends i've got two or three good friends yeah. that's all i need a lot of people I know, and that's just nice. Um, and so I'll say that my job is to show you what you said your plan was, and then your, I, I get them to sync their calendars on my calendar so I can see what they're doing. And my conversation is really a mirror. You said you were going to do this. If you did, great, well done. T talk me through how you got yourself to do it. If you didn't, talk me through how you got yourself not to do it. So then on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you can be your own mirror because you've said these are the things that you're going to do so you can see identity times courage equals weirdo because once you start living that truthfully or that purely there's not many people brian that actually do <laughs> yeah. you start to look you start to look pretty weird yeah there's a like you said there is brilliant and something that kind of resonated with me a lot in the sporting sense when you talk there about careful and conservative and being risk averse so how you're not really doing anything because like in you see like in life mm. you got to live life so fully while you're here and throw the kitchen sink mm. we say that in ireland as well and mm. then in that's why the irish and kiwis get on so good yeah exactly and then when playing rugby is something that i my whole life has kind of frustrated me a bit but even i'm still battling it a bit now with say the team i play with and i coach so i've i think i've imparted on the players i coach but like you got to dare to be great. You mm -hmm. got to, 
you gotta dare to be the best version of yourself that you can be and you will make mistakes you watch any match you will make mistakes i was chatting to last week or the week before i missed a game i think i got COVID. i was a bit sick and i was chatting to a young lad who's playing on our team and i just said to him this is a tuesday after and i said how was the game at the weekend how'd you get on and he goes oh i didn't make any mistakes <laughs> but but i didn't really do much and I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. I was just like, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, there's this thing of don't make a mistake. Lads, don't make it. Come on, stop making mistakes. Oh, I told you you shouldn't have tried that offload. Whenever the outcome isn't success. And I had this as a kid growing up with coaches. Like I would try an offload. I would try a kick. I would try whatever. I could do four of them. They'll work. The fifth one doesn't work. Hey, come on. You shouldn't have done that one. Oh, but you had no issue with the three that worked, but the one that doesn't work. And it's even two weeks ago while playing, it's the same thing. It's like I did five things that were not in a script that worked. One of them didn't work. And one of the senior players is kind of a player coach said to me, oh, come on, there's a time and place. <laughs> and I'm like, you had no issue with the other five. <laughs> And I just think it's like, as young, young players as well, like we, there's such a fear of making a mistake. And I think as coaches as well. But then the more I, I learn and read from top coaches and, I don't know, go on webinars and whatever, whatever, over COVID, you just learn that failure is so important. And that's what the coaches, I've, I don't have that much experience of it, but the, you have a lot of experience of these environments at the top level of room for failure, room for making mistakes, and then... I think it's maybe even more so in the the Kiwis, like you've worked with the Chiefs and other New Zealand teams, but they, I feel that they have less of a constraint to fit in. They're, they're willing to try things. They're willing to try more things and less afraid of making mistakes. Like how was the environment in the Chiefs or say now in Japan? Hmm. It's a great reflection because it's, it is the key or the golden road is that you can get to a point where the leaders genuinely live living rather than dying slowly, which is don't make mistakes, stay to the game plan um, in the wrong way. Um, so definitely, the I guess the key, the, my hesitation is that even the great coaches I still think aren't as free as I'd like them to be. And I still believe that um, there is so much room that we can flow, which is to learn through success and learn through magic and really magnify, you know, you're like your example of four examples where it worked and one it didn't. I still see really good coaches will pull out the one that didn't to try and help them learn and I'll still comment on it. And, and you know they, they they might be not as extreme of learning through error, but I still feel that the the predominant model, even across really good coaches, is um, error sensitive. They still you watch them in the box, and an error happens, and they yeah, things like that. So. So they are good. I'd like them to be more extreme with regards to how they coach and learn through success and 
brilliance of the, I guess the brilliance for me of spirit and taking a gamble and throwing the throwing caution to the wind. And but they're all still scared of losing because they want to get their, they want to win the championship, they want to get their job back. So even unconsciously they don't realise it. Unconsciously they're still driven by things that we we're talking about before. There's not many coaches I've met that are, you know, there's probably only one or two really that are quite happy to lose their job. Yeah. <laughs> Most of them want to keep their job. And as soon as they want to keep their job, they are automatically moving down the line of coaching era and um, not being free because there's the careful and conservative. And they don't, you know, they're not, they're not wanting to do that. But they, especially if they lose two or three games in a row, then they really start to see the, that shift um, but the coaches that are happy to lose their job as long as they live the way and are proud of the way um, that's very special and I remember John Wooden talking and he was asked what's his favourite memory as a coach and I think he was like 95 or 96 or something when they interviewed him asked him that and he said oh when we the year that we lost 13 and won 14. And people were thinking, oh, they must, surely it was winning. What did he win? 10 university national championships or something. Mm. It, it wasn't his best memory. His best memory was <clears throat> a team of men that were punching above their weight. Their work ethic was unreal. And their commitment to learning he believed was through the roof and that's why he he felt that that team shouldn't have probably won any games <laughs> and so it's a very special thing to find a coach that is purely focused on learning through success and deeply developmental most want to be there and they do their best to be there but again it depends on how secure their inner world is and how happy they would be not to be employed and sadly, that's like most people in the world too. They get caught in that trap that they desperately want their job and need their job for a mortgage and a way of life. And so they compromise and that automatically leads them to trying to avoid things going wrong, worrying about stuff happening, going badly. Um, and so I have lots of examples of coaches who live their way, um, yet it's understanding that I don't still don't think it's the dominant way. Um, the magic of a coach that can come in the start of an analyst a review session um, and hopefully if if it's in the framework that I wanted in he's not going to say much anyway because he should have units who are doing the review he shouldn't be up the front because that's not how it works on the field they have to review in the moment on the field so they should be reviewing and they should be setting up ways to help people learn how to do that and then get stuck into it but you'd want, let's say it was the type five, you'd want them, you know, for me, you'd want them to show four or five clips of magic or two or three clips of magic and magnificence <clears throat> and then to review that based on their plan that they had for the campaign, where they were in regards to the numbers and if they were on the right track. And if they are on the right track, at that point, I don't think they even need to look at the error because I've learned what they need to learn. Because whether you go through error or success, once you hit the grass, the plan still looks the same. 
you still have to train the same stuff. So I'd rather they train that same stuff off the high of like one moment of magnificence or magic where it worked and then chase it again and chase it again and chase it again. The skill, the skill acquisition can happen through skill set. They, you don't need to hammer a point where it didn't work for them to get, they're not going to get better skill acquisition by hammering them. No, you so don't actually learn special. anything. Yeah, you don't, no. uh, by showing the no. mistake, you don't actually learn anything. It's like, because you can't see it done well. Like if you show, um, I don't know, a pass that goes behind, doesn't go to hand, a move that doesn't work, you're not seeing, as you say, you're not seeing success. So you're not actually learning. You're just like, oh, that's what it's not meant to look like. Mm. But what's that meant to look like? Yeah, totally. Yeah, and and, and it's always... You know, over the years, no matter whether we go through a moment of magic or an era, um, once I hit the grass, the plan's exactly the same. So it was a choice. There's a choice about what we looked at in the sitting bit before we go and put our boots on and go on the grass bit, because the grass bit's always the same. It's just that the only thing that's different is the player's spirit when they get to the grass. They might be like, oh, fuck, <laughs> versus, yeah, let's chase that again. Yeah. yeah and when uh, and then the coaches obviously have to create an environment or facilitate create an environment where the players are always just wanting to chase that and do it again versus yeah. having that fear yeah. of making a mistake and yeah when you're talking i love the part about um identity times courage equals authenticity and when you're speaking about that i think i don't know what you're talking about like a life example but the person and i'm oh, sorry the quintessential weirdo and the person that I, I was thinking of a rugby point of view and i just kept thinking of carlos spencer like he was like my idol growing up and mm. he was just someone who kind of like danced the beat of his own drum and just did just like played in a different way but was very authentic and because of that there was just so many brilliant moments and i think it happens a lot like say marcus smith now at england growing up was one of those as well he just did things it's like wow but and there's been lots of players like that but um i don't know then coaches it sometimes happens i don't think it ever happened to carlos spencer but sometimes it happens and you see great things when players are young and then they fit into a square peg or they get kind of beaten into you know yeah work on this do this don't do that don't do this do that and it kind of goes that magic goes yeah it goes and it can go very quickly now, if the culture's a repressive one because of that, and it doesn't take much to shift somebody, you know, punch someone in the face. You have to punch them once for them to be a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit more cautious. And that's what it is. It's a psychological punch. Yeah, so true. How have you found uh, working with Japanese players versus Kiwis? Mm, unreal. Uh, um you know, I've, I didn't really know what to expect when I went over and worked with them or what we'd find from the psychological side of things. And I find them to be the, oh, yeah, I'd rate them as the best rugby players I've worked with in the sense of what you and I are talking about in their application to baking the recipe. Very open-minded, um, especially, the, especially the younger guys. Um, very open-minded, growth mindset, work ethic is next level, like unreal what they'll do in a day and be very comfortable to do that. Um, so their training ethic is through the roof. 
their commitment to detail is, is, is beyond compare. You know, as a coach going to Japan, you're just stepping into the, you know, I guess the ingredients that you always look for in New Zealand. The the challenge with it though is for them to step outside the square. The challenge for them is to not be so rule bound. The challenge for them is not to be so do as you're told. Because um, you know, it's a it's a balance of both those things. Like it's their it's their greatest strength is their greatest weakness as well. Um, but I'd rather be working with their strengths. Because <laughs> in New Zealand, the man, New Zealand's way too relaxed. Rugby's just you know, it's a professional amateur sport. You know, you look at the way that New Zealand, not this is a generalisation because within rugby there's some great exceptions, but in general, your individual Olympic athletes kick New Zealand's rugby's ass with regards to attention to detail, work ethic, um, driving their own school development, you know, driving their own campaign and programmes, whereas rugby's done a good job to breed um, learned helplessness in some ways where I think we're not growing enough maturity and the young men coming in and we just do so much for them, I think it ends up kicking us in the ass when they get under the pump. Um, so Japan, unreal um, layers there for growing greatness. And I think they're going to be a rugby force to be reckoned with in another generation. You know, I think it's that. The, the only issue now is depth. You know, the, the, top, the top players in Japan are, I think, equal and competitive with the best in the world. And they showed that the last World Cup. The thing is, it's that they just need a little bit of time to get that depth underneath so that you know they don't, they don't have to play the same 15 in every single game of a World Cup. Um, so that, that, that that's real exciting about what's growing over there. And people, you know, I think the World Cup people really stopped and reconsidered Japan. Um, so it's exciting, I and mean, that's their work ethic and the stuff that we talked about that sits underneath that for me. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it happened, I suppose, with 2015 that when they got against South Africa and then yeah. obviously beat, Ar beat Ireland last time and they've for sure been going in the right the right trajectory. But mm. interesting there, like the work ethic, I listened to Eddie Jones' book and he said that, he said, yeah, that the, it was incredible. He mentioned as well. And he said that at one point they were training three times a day. They'd get mm -hmm. up like 3 a.m., train, back to bed, up at 7 a.m., train, back to bed. Of, and train again like as in just like ridiculous training sessions you know something um a player asked me before about overtraining and have you had to, what is have you a view on overtraining or how do you quantify that like yeah the science is the you know there's a couple of layers there there's science and psychology sevens has shown for a long time that if you get to a band of high intense work and stay there your injury rates are lower than if you come off and try and get back up that's my understanding that's just my lay person understanding of it yeah. it's better to be at a high high level and stay there than to chop and change so i i guess for me that often i'm listening to trainers talk more psychological limitations than what the science says about what's too much so with regards to the physical side of training, um, I don't really have a view on what's too much, but the science does. 
Because the body, the body, if you take emotions and psychology away from it, at the end of the day, the body is a physiological thing. So there's huge science about what's enough and what's too much, and what that then leads to, you know, you know, your neurological fatigue and overload at that level, and then, you know, damage. So I think the science is really clear that most people can do more than they think they can. So I think that's the key bit there is that most people think they're training at the top, but I don't think there's many that are. So then the second layer is psychologically what sits underneath um, for people. And again, if we come back to what we talked about earlier, the difference between passion and, and obsession is we're doing what we love with who we love. Now, those people never burn out. Mm. Those pure, the pure, pure place of doing what you love with who you love, you don't burn out. You just get exhausted and have to have a sleep because <laughs> you're puckered. Um, and you combine that with a good science, sports scientist, and you've got a lovely combination. The athletes or rugby players that would say they'd come and say they need to have a mental break, I'd often find that their own sense of identity isn't as strong, and there's anxiety and insecurity and feeling like each week's a challenge for them to overcome their fear of failing and fear of imperfection and deep desire to be perfect. So you can start to see how there's more in that space. They feel like they have to train, otherwise catastrophe will happen, or they have to do this, otherwise this happens. And now what we're talking about is obsessive. It's a, it's a, it's an equation that's set up on you have to do A, B, and C, otherwise this is going to happen, or this is not going to happen. That's not passion anymore. And so those people do, I believe, psychologically burn out because it's a different pathway. So overtraining, um, a most people are under training and they think they are overtraining or they're training enough, but they're not. And B, that the difference between passion and forced action is monumental. A lot of hours go into making this podcast each week. If you enjoy listening to the pod and would like to support me in making it and making sure that it keeps coming out, I have a Patreon page and there's a supporters tier. You can sign up, it's monthly, and I don't know what currency you're in, but it'll be a very, very small amount. But that support would mean so, so much to me. Also, if you're an ambitious player or someone who's interested in self-development, if you're a coach and you want to help your players on the mental side of the game, I have a tier called The First 15. And on this tier, you'll get extra podcasts from me based around mental skills, sports psychology that will help you become more confident, more accountable, develop stronger self-belief and give you tools to deal with adversity. I sometimes put out bite-sized, like shorter versions of these Patreon-only podcasts so you can listen into them to get an idea. And there's a third tier, uh, one-on-one mentorship tier for if you want to do exactly that, work one-on-one with me so that I can help you become the player that you know you can be and achieve your goals. Lastly, if you're a coach or involved with a team and you think it's important for players to be confident, have self-belief, be mentally strong, send me a DM on Instagram or Twitter at Rugby, and we'll chat about what I can do to help your team become exactly that. Yeah, and so when you're saying there about obsession, is it... and say burnout or mental fatigue 
is it good for players to take some time to think about what they really want to achieve like what their say ultimate goal is and what why they're doing it and to really have the fire burning for that because like i've heard mcgregor before he had the downfall was just saying like i'm obsessed i'm obsessed and he you know once again was training so much and i've heard arnold schwarzenegger talk about he's like i was training five hours a day every day because i I wanted, I saw myself as Mr. Olympia. I wanted it so bad. And Muhammad Ali, I've heard, you know, once again, the same thing. Mm, it's like, mm, just, I was doing mm. 2000, I've 2000 sit-ups and da, da, da. And they just want it so bad. And it's, you, they kind of say what you're saying is they have that obsession. Mm. But if somebody, uh, say a, a player is getting burnt out, be like, oh, training tomorrow. Oh, you know, couldn't mm. be bothered. You know, or is it, Whereas the disconnect there is that they 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 don't have a they're not obsessed about an ultimate goal. Is that it? Kind of. Probably, for me, that what they what they're missing is a deep love for what they're doing. They're doing it to get to get something. And there is a real difference in someone that just absolutely lives and loves rugby or whatever the sport or whatever the thing. They. They just don't stop. They're thinking about it. They're writing about it. Um, but that person too, if they're also what you and I talked about before, which they found in a piece, um, for example, a goal-kicking session, they don't kick 300 balls so they reassure themselves they're ready for the game. Mm. They'll kick a variety of balls and love trying to shape the ball and kick from outrageous places just for the game, for the fun of it, and have a couple of coffees on it. Um, but also have the sessions during the week with the, the kicking coach to know that they're technically um, growing over time and they're getting it to the place it needs to be to be up, you know, 85, 90% accuracy based on tests. So you can see how automatically there's a whole balance in that space. But they may choose that they would rather have rugby than a wife so that's sweet. If they, if they love rugby more than that, then don't get married. Um, but if they are married, then they can finish their session and go home and be dad and be husband and recover and stretch and they're, they're really, you know, really relaxed with life because they've got that in the sense of rugby is their life. Because a lot of people say to me, "Oh, you need to you need to be careful. We don't make rugby or your sport your life." And I'm like. Why not? <laughs> if you love it that much, what, what's wrong with saying that you love it like almost more than life? Because a lot of people say to me, oh, they need balance. And I go, no, they don't. They need love. And then they need courage. So they need to have love and courage and then accept for maturity that making this decision means that they can't do B, C, and D. But don't get to 40 and say, oh, I should have had a family. You're like, uh, we had this discussion because I, I love the definition of maturity which means that at the end of the day you're able to accept your decisions and the consequences of them good or bad and there's that's a pretty special place so I, I, I'm not so fussed on this whole thing about balance I'm more fussed on finding your truth you're finding your truth <clears throat> inside and doing what you love and then that would be a great life imagine doing that for your whole life playing coaching managing 
helping out, putting the putting the flags and putting the pads up, helping out on the bar, making food, and then having a heart attack, heart attack in the club rooms. Like, <laughs> what, what a life! And if there's a lady there and a family there, well, then they're going to be part of that too. So you can see, I, I do just want to, you know, challenge people a little bit about saying I have to be balanced. I think you have to be honest. Um. And so that's the passion thing again, you know, like there's just something in that space where if they didn't do it, they would be depressed. But not not from a point of what obsession is because that's not depression. Now that now we've got something else going on. Well, yeah, um, it's finding what you truly love and then pursuing that yeah. fully. Yeah, yeah, and then dying. Yeah, and that, <laughs> can, and that obviously then, as you say, changes, changes over time and... Uh, I think it's important then or is it with not tying up your identity with what you love at that moment so say like with a player like being like tying up your identity like you know the things I loved when I was 16 are different to the things I love now and I'm sure they'll be different when I'm 40 mm. and it's it's mm. like if you tie you just mentioned depression but like if you tie up your identity with um being a certain thing and that's all you are like it's great if all you are is a rugby player because you love it so much and that just fills you with joy and love and, and every day is great because of that. But I think when you get, if you get tied to it and then mm. it's taken away and you're not flexible, then a depression can come there. Yeah. It's a, it's understanding that the rugby is merely the vehicle for how you live. Mm. And then that's that's really the key essence of it is that you love rugby. It's the vehicle through which you express who you are from your ancestry. Then it's listening to the heart or the soul because at some point it may no longer be rugby. It may be lawn bowls mm. or it may be knitting or it may be fishing or it may be business, whatever it is. But each thing that we do is merely the vehicle through which we live the spirit of our ancestry and identity, which is integrity. So a day where we go, okay, um, rugby isn't it? It doesn't actually matter because what is it is the spirit that sits underneath what we're doing. Um, and usually people, you know, I find that people will shift, if people shift dramatically from things, it's telling me that it's filling a hole for them and they're busy trying to find the thing. And so usually there's a bit of a discussion about, you know, you've tried 16 things. <laughs> like, yeah, I just can't, I just want to try this. I want to try that. I want to try this. I want to try that. That might be the case. But what I find is that people like that often are quite unsettled inside themselves and they're really trying to search out something that they can't figure out. Because in the end, if a life's lived well and we want to be, you know, contribute at something and be good at something, if it's if it's something you want to be contribute a lot to and be really good at, you're probably only going to be able to do one or two things in your lifetime. Because mm -hmm. it actually takes that long. And you know, I still believe that we're, our ancestry holds the place of purity and what we then do. And so you also. You know, I guess it's that maturity decide to, to say that, you know, you can't. The maturity is understanding the impossibility of trying to do everything. 
and then having the humility and deeper layers to cut off from other things and just go, well, this is it. This is this, and it's this, and then I'm going to die. Sweet. Yeah. I don't have to. I, I don't have to go to every single place on the planet. Yeah, and I think uh, when you mention there's someone doing 16 things or try or doing everything to try and find what it is, is like you mentioned earlier. It's uh, probably the answer is to slow down, mm. look inside, and listen to your gut, and mm. then you'll find the answer of what it truly is versus I suppose as you probably say being in your head and kind of thinking mm. oh society now says do yoga society now says run marathons society now says be doing Ironman go cycling do yeah. this and you're you're yeah. doing all these things you hear yeah um you've been on your time thanks Emil one more thing what um and I'm sure it comes up a bit but what is a good way to deal with nerves around performance It's merely a distraction, um, and it's um, just briefly because I need to move on. Um, I love the Taoism and the yin and yang philosophies because a lot of people try and stop their anxiety, and yet uh, the universe talks about dark matter being the most powerful energy form known in the universe. And I believe fear and anxiety is our dark matter. So I never want to stop an athlete's anxiety. If they say, I say, here you go, and they go, I'm nervous. And I go, tell me what you're nervous about. And they're like, tell me. And I go, are you, are you petrified yet? <laughs> <laughs> I, I want them to be terrified. Because if they're terrified and they're also living their ancestry, if they can bring courage to that, we now have harmony between the, the light and the dark, which is now harmony in the yin and the yang. And now we just have available energy to focus into an action. So again, it's perspective. You've got to have the right perspective of your emotions to then be at one with them and welcome them and embrace them and then use them. Um, so there's a couple of things under that, which is the perspective is key, understanding that often the stuff that comes off the emotion is a distraction, which is the cognitive world. And the cognitive world is all distraction, good and bad. It's just a distraction of the unconscious space. And then recognizing that, well, then you can then understand that you sh should be training breath, doing breath work to train focus. Um, so I believe that all people should be doing breath work for health anyway, but breath work also then leads us to be able to focus better, concentrate better. And so all the athletes I'm supporting, um, I expect them to do that. And if they then say that they got the better of me, all they're saying is that they got distracted. My anxiety got me, they got distracted. My hope got me, my confidence got me, whatever. I thought I was just going to get that kick, now they're distracted. I was terrified I wasn't going to get the kick, now they're distracted. So it just simplifies down to they've just shown me that they aren't mentally fit and focus. And I just set that up as focuses on the training every week. Um, they have pressure testing um, to train the focus, to deepen the focus. And then we go at it. So I want them to be scared. I want them to be worried. I want them to be afraid because that's normal. But then I want them to have done the work to be able to invite that, embrace it, and balance it with courage. And then they just they should be just fizzing at that stage with with just energy. And then you better hope this whistle's going to go shortly because they want to go and beat people up. <laughs> yeah. And if they can't, well then if they that's the bit if they've got to that space and then there's no game it's like now you, you've got 
because they just they're just there they're just waiting to go Ready and jump in the roll. cage yeah that's brilliant because yeah. you yeah you harness that nervous energy into adrenaline and then as you say you're going out to battle and then you're yeah you're getting at it yeah yeah thanks um thanks so much for your time david it's been unreal greatly appreciate yeah. it and um, love chatting bro cheers before you go um just with your book how can i get that in canada i, I just looked online is is there a way i can order it here yeah it's a tricky one isn't it um if people if you want to there uh, email me um do what you can do off the website and then okay just give me your address in canada and i'll just post it to you and then i'll just let you know how much it is um with the poster john and then you can just do an international transaction that way perfect yeah 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 wicked thank you awesome thanks a million david cheers yeah really really enjoyed it it's been lovely chat hope you got value from the chat if you did would you please share it with some friends you think would also get value hearing from david on my instagram at off field rugby I put out a post for each pod. It's a pick of the person with a snippet playing over it from the podcast. If you enjoyed the pod, I would be so grateful if you shared that post to your story and tag me at Off Field Rugby. It'll take less than 30 seconds, but would really mean a lot. I loved how David talked about the quintessential weirdo. I thought that was brilliant. The person that's true to who they are who doesn't conform to what society tells them what they need to be or do and who doesn't care about what other people think. I've personally really started to understand the importance of this in the last couple of years, being who you are and not following the path that society tells you to do. If some of what David was saying around that started to resonate with you and got you thinking that maybe there's more, maybe you aren't truly living a life aligned with who you really are, you're not doing the things day to day that really make you feel happy, then a great book to read would be The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari by Robin Sharma. It's a very easy read too. If you're not the biggest reader, you'll be able to get through it. It does start a little slow in the first couple of chapters, but there's some real, real wisdom in there. It's brilliant. It's a New York Times bestseller and has sold millions of copies. If you enjoyed this pod, you will also like the episode I did with Russell Earnshaw, episode 24. He is a guy who won a Heineken Cup as a player with Bath and then went on to coach England under 18s, England 20s, the men's sevens team and now coaches rugby coaches and was recently brought into the England senior setup by Eddie Jones. And another episode that you'll also like would be number 15 with Mike Ruddock, who coached Wales to a Grand Slam. As I told David at the start, one of the main reasons I started the pod is because I want to help young players learn from players and coaches. Because I didn't have that kind of thing when I was younger. I would really have benefited hearing from the likes of David and all these other people I've been fortunate enough to have on the podcast. I love rugby, I love coaching and just helping people be their best selves. I used to work in finance because that's what society told me to do. But now I help young ambitious rugby players get to their next level. I help them discover how to be their best selves 
how to become more confident and have more self-belief. If you're the parent of a high school or university player or whatever, and you think they might get value from working with me, call it mentorship, coaching, whatever you want, then please send me an email, which is offfieldrugby at gmail.com. That's also in the show notes. Or else send me a DM on Instagram, which is at offfieldrugby. And we'll sort of time to chat over the phone. Or if you're a player yourself, what you've done so far has gotten you to where you are now. And if you're happy at the level that you're at, then all good. But if you want to go further and don't want to be five years down the line with regrets, looking back, thinking, I wish I'd done more, then send me a DM and we'll have a chat. I do this weekly podcast conversation with a guest and I also put out extra podcasts around mental performance on Patreon and I also answer questions that you have. If you want access to them, you can join the Patreon in the show notes. Either the first 15 tier or the one-on-one mentorship. Both get access. In the Patreon, I also let you know who's coming up on the podcast, who I'm chatting to. Lewis O'Sullivan, who's on the Patreon, asked me during the week to bring up overtraining with David, which is brilliant. Cheers, Lewis, because, yeah, overtraining and burnout is something you hear a lot of. So I really enjoyed hearing David's take on it, and I definitely got a new perspective there from what he said. If you just enjoy hearing these conversations that I'm having and want to support the show, you can join the supporters tier on Patreon. It's very inexpensive, probably the price of a latte each month. As I touched on, this is truly what I want to do. I want to help young players by hearing these chats and give value or a bit of enjoyment to anyone who listens to them. I have an MBA in finance and I could get a job in a cubicle, earn whatever, I've done that, but I literally can't do that, to be honest. Life's too short, so any support on Patreon would mean the world to me. And thank you so much to those who've already signed up. It's funny, you might hear I have an MBA and think, oh wow, he used to be so down that route. This is a real 180. But to be honest, the only reason that I did an MBA is because I got a scholarship to go to the States to play and coach. It was just all about rugby. And the only reason I did a commerce degree before that in UCD was because going to college was the done thing, just everyone was doing it. And that was the course I had most interest in. I do like business and finance and investing and all that. But while I was doing that degree, I was playing in the Connacht and Ireland system in that pathway, playing with Lansdowne, the AIL, and yeah, that was my purpose back then completely. It's like Dave was chatting about on the way that things on the wall can look good and you can say you're happy. You can have degrees or whatever, but is it really making you happy? Is it truly in line with who you are? Anyway, once again, thanks for clicking in today. Please share the pod with some friends. Please leave a rating and a review. And please follow me on Instagram at Offfield Rugby. Lastly, I loved what David was saying about how it's important to live life to its fullest. Throw the kitchen sink at it, as he said, in all areas and not be careful and conservative. There's a quote I really like from J.K. Rowling that says, It is impossible to live without failing at something, unless you live life so cautiously that you might as well not have lived at all. 
in which case you fail by default. And another one, not by JK Rowling, it's just a random one, but boats are safe in the harbour, but that's not what they're built for. Hope you have a brilliant rest of your day. Cheers.